Book One, Chapter Six of *The Four Stragglers* by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The writing on the wall. It was a night of storm. The rain, wind-driven, swept the decks in gusty, stinging sheets. The big liner rolled and pitched, disgruntled, in the heavy sea. Within the smoking-room at a table in the corner, Captain Francis Newcomb turned from a companion who sat opposite him to face a steward who had just arrived with a tray. "'How about this, steward?' he asked. "'Is this weather going to delay our getting in? I understand that if we don't pass quarantine early enough, they hold us up all night.' "'So they do, sir.' the steward answered. But this isn't holding us up any. A bit nasty, though it is. We'll be docked at New York by two o'clock tomorrow afternoon at the latest. Thank you, sir. He pocketed a generous tip as he departed. The young man at the opposite side of the table, dark-eyed, dark-haired, with fine, clean-cut features, a man of powerful physique, whose great breadth of shoulder was encased in an immaculate dinner-jacket, lifted the glass the steward had just set before him. "'Here's how, Captain,' he smiled. "'The same, Mr. Locke,' returned Captain Francis Newcomb cordially. Howard Locke extracted a cigarette from his case and lighted it. "'The end of as chummy a crossing as I've ever had,' he said. "'Thanks to you. And I've been lucky all round. Cleaned up well in London, and'll get a pat on the back for it from Dad.' and a holiday which, without throwing any bouquets at myself, I'll say I've earned. I think I'll do a bit of coast-cruising in that little old fifty-footer of mine that I've filled your ear full of during the last few days. Wow! And not least of all, my luck was Joyce introducing me to you at lunch that day in the club. It's very good of you to say so, said Captain Francis Newcomb. Good nothing, exclaimed the young American. I mean it. You've made the trip for me. And how about your plans? I know you're going on south somewhere, for you mentioned it the other day. But what about New York? You'll be a little while there, and I feel pleasurably responsible for the stranger in the strange land. The house is barred, for the family is away for the summer, but there are the clubs, and I'd like to put you up and show you around a bit. Captain Francis Newcomb studied the young man's face for a moment. He smiled disarmingly as he did so. Howard Locke was the son of a man of great wealth, the head of a great financial house, and of a family whose social status left nothing to be desired. And America was the land of promise. But one could be too eager. I'd like to, he said heartily, but I fancy I've still quite a little trip ahead of me, and I'm afraid I'm a bit overdue already. As you say, I mentioned that I was going south. To be precise, I am going down Florida way, or do you call it up? As the guest of a Mr. Marlin. Howard Locke removed the cigarette from his lips. Marlin? he repeated. Not Jonathan P. Marlin, by any chance? Captain Francis Newcomb nodded. Phew! the young American whistled softly under his breath. Captain Francis Newcomb lifted his eyebrows inquiringly. "'You know him?' he asked. "'No,' Locke answered. "'Not personally. I know of him, of course. Everybody does. 
and I don't want to be nosy and butt in, and you can heave that glass at me by way of reply if you like, but how in the world do you happen to know him? Captain Francis Newcomb smiled. I don't, he said. My ward, who has been over here at school for the past few years, has been a classmate of Miss Marlin, and she is spending part of the summer with them. Oh, I see. Howard Locke tapped the end of his cigarette on the edge of an ashtray once or twice, and glanced in evident indecision at his companion. Go on, invited Captain Francis Newcomb. What is it? Howard Locke laughed a little awkwardly. Well, I, I don't know, he said, nothing very much, and I'm afraid it's not done, as you English put it, for me to say anything, since he is your prospective host. Still, as you say, you are not personally acquainted with him yourself. I think perhaps you ought to know just the same. I haven't anything definite to go on, no authoritative source of information, but it is rather generally understood that old Marlin's gone a bit queer in the head. Really? ejaculated Captain Francis Newcomb. Good Lord! I had no idea of any such thing. And my ward's on this island of his in the Florida Keys, and— There's nothing whatever to be alarmed about, said the young American hastily. It's nothing like that. He's as harmless as you are, or as I am. It's only on one subject, money. I suppose he was one of the wealthiest men in America at the close of the war, and since then he's been wiped out. Wiped out? Captain Francis echoed incredulously. Comparatively, of course, said Howard Locke. I don't know how much he has left. Nobody does. It's been the talk of the financial district. There isn't a share of stock anywhere to be found standing in his name. He sold everything, and how much was used to cover losses, and how much remained to himself, no one knows. You see, the last few years, to put it mildly, have been hell in a financial and business way. The foreign exchange situation has been a big factor in helping to play the devil with all sorts of holdings. Values have depreciated. The market has gone smash. Industries that were big dividend payers haven't been able to meet their overhead. You may not believe it, but hundreds and hundreds have taken their money out of the banks, and, insisting on being paid in American gold certificates, when they couldn't get the actual gold itself, have hoarded it in the safe deposit vaults. God knows why. Just instances the general panicky conditions everywhere, I suppose. The aftermath of the war. History repeating itself, so the writers on economics tell us. Small consolation. However, Marlin met with crash after crash. He lost millions. He's not a young man, you know, and it evidently got him finally in the shape of a monomania. Finance. You understand? He was on a dozen big directorates, and his trouble began to show itself in the shape of an obsession that everything should be turned into cash. Buildings, plants, everything, into American cash. Naturally, he was quietly and unostentatiously dropped. Poor devil! Certainly, his losses were terrific. I don't know whether he's got anything left or not. "'By Jove!' said Captain Francis Newcomb gravely. "'I'm glad you told me. Pretty rough, that, I call it.' "'Yes,' said Locke, "'it is. Damned rough. I think everybody was sorry for him. 
and so he's down there at this place of his now on an island in the florida keys eh yes said captain francis newcomb the young american selected another cigarette from his case rolled it slowly between his fingers and leaned suddenly across the table look here he said i've an idea i'm going cruising somewhere why not there the florida coast hits me down to the ground how would you like to make the trip with me captain francis newcomb leaned back in his chair and laughed a little i'm afraid not he said i come on be a sport urged howard locke enthusiastically the more i think of it the better i like it i'll have good company on a cruise and you'll enjoy it and it's quite all right so far as my showing up there is concerned it isn't as though i were foisting myself on their hospitality the little old boat's my home and for that matter i can drop you and sail solemnly away you'll have the time of your life what's the objection time said captain francis newcomb it would take a long while wouldn't it well said howard locke i wouldn't guarantee to get you there as fast as a train would but what difference does a few days make it isn't as though it were a business engagement you had to keep no that's so acknowledged captain francis newcomb and frankly i must admit it appeals to me but he looked at his watch i don't know whether i can manage it or not anyway i promise to sleep on it it's after twelve and time to turn in what do you say that suits me said howard locke so long as you promise to say yes in the morning we'll see said captain francis newcomb the two men rose from their chairs and crossing the room where several games of bridge were in progress stepped out on the deck and here their respective cabins lying in different directions they bade each other good night but now captain francis newcomb despite the pitching of the ship and the general unpleasantness of the night appeared to be in no hurry he walked slowly it was the lee side and under the covered deck he was protected from the rain he looked behind him the young american evidently in no mind for anything but the snugger shelter of his cabin had disappeared the deck was deserted the ex-captain of territorials stepped to the rail and stared out into the murk through which there showed like penciled streaks on a black background the white irregular shapes of the cresting waves the howl of the wind the boom and crash of the seas made thunderous tumult conflict turmoil and he laughed and spume flying struck his face and he laughed again because a sort of fierce exultation was upon him and he felt something akin in these wild untrammelled voices of the elements a challenge far-flung and savage and contemptuous of all who would say them nay and then his eyes narrowed thoughtfully and his fingers played a soft tattoo upon the dripping rail i wonder said captain francis newcomb to himself i wonder if it suits my book his mind began to moil over the problem in a cold, unprejudiced, judicial way. Was the balance for or against the acceptance of the young American's offer? To arrive at Marlin's place in the company of a man of the standing of Howard Locke was an endorsement that spoke for itself. But he already had an unqualified endorsement. Polly supplied it. Still, he could not have too much of that sort of thing. 
Would, then, the man be in the way, a hindrance, a complication? He could not answer that offhand, but it did not seem to be a vital point. What he proposed to do on Manwa Island in a general way he knew well enough, but just how he proposed to do it, and just how long he proposed to stay there, a week or a month or longer, only local conditions as he found them must decide. He shrugged his shoulders suddenly. Neither Howard Locke nor any other man would make of himself a hindrance. Hindrances were removed. But there was another point, an outstanding point. After Manwa Island there was America. True, he had brought Runnels with him, while he had said good-bye to Paul Cremar, who had departed for Paris, and thereafter for such destination as his fancy prompted, for the period, mutually agreed upon, of six months. But he, Captain Francis Newcomb, was not prepared to say when, or where, if ever, he intended to utilize, in the same manner as before, the services of either Runnels or the Frenchman again. Certainly not in America, if a lone hand promised better there. He proposed to play a lone hand at this Manwa Island. It might be well that he would continue to do so thereafter. And in America, an intimacy with Howard Locke, such as this projected cruise offered, would help amazingly to spread and germinate the seed already sown by Polly Wicks. Polly Wicks was his private property. Captain Francis Newcomb smiled confidentially at the angry waters. Yes, he said, I think it is quite possible that he may be able to persuade me. He turned abruptly away from the rail, making for his cabin, which was on the deck above and on the opposite side of the ship, and presently, halting in the lighted alleyway before his door, he turned the key in the lock and entered. And then, just across the threshold, he stood for the fraction of a second like a man dazed, and the door, torn from his hand by a fierce gust of wind, slammed with a bang behind him. The cabin was on the windward side, the window was open, and outside the window, indistinct, shadowy, as though almost it might be a hallucination of the mind, a man's form suddenly loomed up. There was a flash, the roar of a revolver shot, muffled, almost drowned out in the thunder of the storm, and Captain Francis Newcomb lay flat upon the cabin floor. The next instant he flung himself over beside the settee, and protected here from another shot, raised his head. The form had vanished from the window. A cold fury seized upon the man. From his pocket he drew his own revolver, and covering the window as he backed swiftly for the door, wrenched the door open and made for the first egress to the deck. Too late, of course. The deck was deserted. He stood there, grim-faced, tight-lipped, straining his eyes up and down the length of the deck through the darkness, the rain beating into his face. And then he began to run again, like a dog seeking scent. There were a dozen places up here where a man might hide, the juts of the superstructure, the great grotesque looming ventilators, the openings through to the other side of the deck. But he found nothing, no one. There was only the deserted deck, the drenching rain and the howl of the wind metamorphosed itself into ironical shrieks. Captain Francis Newcomb returned along the deck, and halted outside his cabin window. He examined it critically. 
it had been pried open from the outside the marks were distinctly indented on the sill as though a jimmy or iron bar of some kind had been used he stared at it his jaws clamped it was unpleasant someone on the ship had deliberately premeditatively attempted to murder him there was something of hideous malignancy in it to pry the window open and wait there patiently in the storm for the sole purpose of ending a man's life it hadn't succeeded because intuition or perhaps better an exaggerated instinct of self-preservation born of the years in which he had flaunted defiance of every law in the face of his fellow-men had prompted him though taken unawares to act even quicker than his assailant who lay in wait and to fling himself instantly to the floor of the cabin who was it why was it who on board the ship had any incentive any reason any cause to murder him save for Locke, the young american he knew no one on board barring runnels of course except in the ordinary casual way of shipboard acquaintanceship struck up since the ship had left liverpool it could not be any one of these at least not logically and of them all it certainly could not be Locke. the ship's company absurd runnels still more absurd and so he had eliminated everybody and yet somebody had done it he began to work with the window reaching inside he drew the curtains carefully together and then lowered the window itself when he re-entered his room even providing he were still being watched he would not be exposed in the same way as a target again he stood there now in the rain his face hard with savage drooping lines at the corners of his mouth was he being watched now was there a cat-and-mouse game in play well two could play at that he too could prowl about the ship his bed held little of invitation for him he went to runnels room the man was in bed asleep that definitely disposed of runnels he returned and made another circuit of the upper deck and then forward by one of the open companionways he descended to the deck below his mind was in a strange state of turmoil it was not physical fear it was as though a host of haunting shapes were being marshalled against him were rising up out of the past to disturb him jeering at him mocking him plaguing him with sinister possibilities the past was peopled with shapes shapes that had lived in the world of shadow varn shapes which might well be accused of this attempt to do away with him could they but take tangible form could their presence but be reconciled with the here and now with this ship with these damp slippery decks with the drive and sting of the rain with the scream and howl of the wind with the plunge and roll of the great liner the buffeting of the waves if they could be but reconciled with material things he clenched his hands he was not a man who could search his memory in vain for one who owed him such a debt as this it was rather that his memory became crowded and confused with the number that came thronging in upon it each vying with the others to shriek the loudest its boasted claim to the attempted retribution to-night he set his teeth where had he failed when had he left ajar behind him the door of the past that allowed any one of these ghostly shapes to slip through upon his heels ghostly there was little of the ghostly here he must have been recognized by someone on board the ship it seemed incredible impossible 
but it was equally incontrovertible. Who? And what did it portend? Tonight he had won the first hand, but... Locke! He was standing beside the smoking-room window. Locke was in there, his back turned, standing beside one of the bridge-tables, watching a game. It was a little strange. He had parted with Locke out here on the deck, and Locke was going to his cabin to turn in. For an instant Captain Francis Newcomb held there, his brows knitted in a perplexed frown. Howard Locke! It was preposterous. It would not hold water. It was childish, unless the young American were someone other than he pretended to be. And there wasn't a chance in a thousand of that. His mind worked swiftly now. Locke had been introduced to him at lunch in the club a few days before they had sailed. That certainly vouched for the man sufficiently, didn't it? Locke had volunteered the information that he had booked passage on this ship, and they had not met again until here on shipboard. If Locke was what he passed for, if he was one of the best families of America, the son of a millionaire, a clever, hard-working and ambitious young businessman, it was untenable to assume for an instant that he was a potential murderer. It was even laughable. There wasn't even that one chance in a thousand that he could be any other than he seemed. Not a chance in a million. And yet... Chance, said Captain Francis Newcomb, is the playground of fools. We will see. He turned and ran swiftly along the deck. A minute later he was standing before one of the two doors of the young American's suite. A little metal instrument was in his hand, but it went instantly back into his pocket. The door was not locked. He stepped inside and closed the door behind him. Locke had one of the best and most expensive reservations on the ship, a suite of two rooms and a private bath, but there was a separate door from each of these rooms to the passageway without since, naturally, they were not always booked en suite. And the room he stood in now was the one Locke used for his sitting-room, and always as the entrance to the suite itself. Captain Francis Newcomb was quick in every movement now. He ran through to the other room, the bedroom, closing the connecting door behind him. He switched on the light, and turned at once to the door that gave here on the passageway. The key was in the lock, and the door was locked, he unlocked it. The next instant he had a portmanteau open and was delving into its contents. It contained nothing but clothing, shirts, collars, ties, underwear, and the like. He opened another, and still another with the same result. Papers! It was the man's papers that interested him. He snarled a little savagely to himself. There was nothing for it then but the steamer trunk under the couch, and Locke might be back at any moment. He dragged out the trunk, and snarled again savagely. It was locked. He began to work with it now, swiftly, deftly, with the little steel picklock. It yielded finally, and he flung back the lid. Yes, this was what he wanted. On the top lay a leather dispatch case. But this also was locked. Again Captain Francis Newcomb set to work, and presently was glancing through a mass of papers and documents that the dispatch case had contained. Letters from the father's firm to the son, signed by Locke Sr. A letter of credit in substantial amount. An underwriting agreement with a London house for the floating of a huge issue of bonds, signed and sealed, the tangible evidence of young Locke's successful trip, of which he had spoken. 
incontrovertible evidence that Howard Locke was no other than he appeared to be, and... Captain Francis Newcomb sprang for the electric light switch and turned off the light. There was Locke now. The pound of the ship, the noise of the storm, had of course deadened any sound in the passageway, but he could hear the other at the sitting-room door. There was no time to replace the dispatch case and push the trunk back under the couch, let alone attempt to lock either one. The man was coming now, across the other room. Captain Francis Newcomb laid the dispatch case silently down on the floor, opened the door as silently, stepped out into the passageway, and ran noiselessly along it. He reached the door of his own cabin. His excursion to Locke's cabin, and the evidence of intrusion he had been forced to leave behind him, had put an end to any more prowling on his part to-night. Locke would probably kick up a fuss. There would be a very strict search for prowlers. He snapped his jaws together viciously. That did not at all please him. He would very much prefer that the would-be assassin should have another opportunity of showing his hand, that the man would be inspired to make a second attempt. He, Captain Francis Newcomb, would be a little better prepared this time. He pushed open the door of his cabin cautiously, and for an instant stood motionless, a little back from the threshold, and at one side. There was always the possibility, remote that it might be, that while he had been out searching for the other, the man had slipped inside and, waiting, had made of the cabin a death-trap, which he, Captain Francis Newcomb, was now invited to enter. It was not likely. It would require a little more nerve than the firing of a shot through the window, and then running away. But, for all that, having failed the first time, the other might be moved to take what might possibly be considered more certain measures on the next attempt. And in that case, no, the cabin was empty. The light from the passageway, filtering in through the open door, showed that quite plainly. Captain Francis Newcomb stepped inside, and, before closing the door, looked curiously over the woodwork near the door and on a line with the window. Yes, there it was, the writing on the wall. The bullet had splintered a piece of the wall panelling, and had embedded itself in the wall a little to the right of the door casing. He closed and locked the door now, shutting out the light, and, with his revolver in his hand, sat down in the darkness, out of direct range himself, but where he could command the window. It was a bit futile. He was conscious of that. But there was always the possibility of the man's return and there was no other possibility that promised any better, or, indeed, promised anything at all. His mind began to weigh, and sift, and grope, as through a maze, battling with the problem again. Not Locke. He was rather definitely prepared to set Locke apart from everybody else on board the ship, and say that it was not Locke. Who, then? Who had any... He straightened up, suddenly even more alert. There was someone out in the passageway now, someone outside his door. There came a low, quick rap. "'Who's there?' demanded Captain Francis Newcomb sharply. Locke's voice answered. "'It's Locke. May I come in?' Captain Francis Newcomb crossed to the door, unlocked it, and flung it open. "'Hello!' ejaculated the young American, as the light from the passageway fell upon the other. "'Not in bed, and in the dark.' What's the idea? Why no light? 
"'Because I fancy it's safer, in the dark,' said Captain Francis Newcomb. "'Come in.' "'Safer?' Howard Locke stepped into the cabin and closed the door behind him. "'How safer? Say, look here. Someone's been turning my stateroom inside out, been going through my things.' "'You're lucky,' said Captain Francis Newcomb tersely. "'Lucky!' echoed the young American quickly. "'What do you mean?' "'That it wasn't anything worse,' said Captain Francis Newcomb coolly. "'Someone's been trying to put a bullet through me. Only it went into the wall over there instead. Here, take a look.' He switched on the light. "'See it? There, by the door-casing.' "'Good God!' exclaimed Locke. "'Yes, I see it. When was this?' "'Shortly after I left you. As I opened the door here and stepped into the cabin, I was fired at through the window. And the window had been opened from the outside. There are marks on it, and whoever it was was waiting for me.' "'That's damned queer,' said Howard Locke. "'When I left you, I went to my rooms, and everything was all right. I went back to the smoking-room, because I had left my cigarette-case there. I stayed a few minutes watching several hands of bridge, and when I went back to my rooms again, I found my steamer-trunk open and a case of papers on the floor.' "'Anything missing?' asked Captain Francis Newcomb. "'No, not so far as I know,' Locke answered. What do you think had better be done? I think you had better switch that light off, and stand away from the line of the window. The young American shook his head. No, he said, it's hardly likely that the same game would be tried twice in the same night. Say, what do you make of it? It seems mighty queer that you and I should have been picked out for some swine's attentions. What should be done? What have you done? Nothing so far, Locke replied. I came here at once to tell you about it, and ask your advice. I suppose the commander ought to be told. Captain Francis Newcomb sat down on the edge of his bunk. I can't see the good of it, he said slowly. We're landing tomorrow. It would mean the shore police aboard, and no end of a fuss, and an almost certain delay. Nobody allowed off the ship, and all that, you know. I can't see how it would get us anywhere. You haven't lost anything, and I... "'Well, I'm still alive.' "'That's true,' said Locke. He was staring at the bullet-hole in the wall. "'And worst of all, there'd be the reporters. Three-inch headlines. I'm not for that. I agree with you. We'll say nothing.' Captain Francis Newcomb inspected Locke's back. "'How much of a crew do you carry on this fifty-footer of yours?' he inquired softly. Why, not necessarily anyone, but the two of us and your man, if you'll come along. Howard Locke turned around suddenly to face the other. Why? Well, said Captain Francis Newcomb quietly, under those conditions, as the two victims of tonight, we'd form a sort of mutual protective society, and perhaps, if the offer is still open, it would be the safest way for me to reach my destination. There wouldn't be any windows for anyone to fire through. Howard Locke lighted a cigarette. There's a go, he said. I'm very keen to make the trip with you, and if all this has decided it, I'm glad it's happened. That's fine. And now, what are you going to do for the rest of the night? Why, I'm going to bed, said Captain Francis Newcomb casually, and at the risk of appearing inhospitable, I should advise you to do likewise. Right, agreed Locke. There's nothing else to do. 
he stepped toward the door, but paused, staring at the bullet mark in the wall again. "'That bullet hole seems to fascinate you,' smiled Captain Francis Newcomb. "'Yes,' said Locke, as he opened the door. "'I was thinking what a rotten thing it was to be fired at cold-bloodedly in the dark. Good night.' The door closed. Captain Francis Newcomb did not go to bed. With the light out again, he sat there on the bunk. Long minutes passed. They drifted into hours. The man's figure became crouched, became a shape that lost human semblance, that was like unto some creature huddled in its lair, and the face was no longer human, for upon it was stamped the passions of hell, and the head became cocked, curiously sideways, in a strained attitude of attention, as though listening, 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 always listening. And there came a time when he spoke aloud, and called out hoarsely, "'Who's that? Who's whispering there? Who's calling Shadowvarn, Shadowvarn, Shadowvarn?' And in answer, the ship's bell struck the hour of dawn. End of Book One, Chapter Six